Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 4, 30-32 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, it's good to be able to share God's Word with you today. Um, Welcome. Let me just add my welcome if you are joining us a bit late in the service. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to be one of the leaders of this historic church, this above all wonderful family, extraordinarily diverse family of different ages, different nationalities and backgrounds. We think we have over 40 different ethnicities here, which is just fantastic, all coming together as one beautiful body. And we are in a season, in a series, we've been studying through this letter from the first century, it's called Ephesians, it was written to not just the church in Ephesus, but in and around that area, Um, and we've been focusing particularly into chapter 4, towards the beginning of chapter 6, in a theme of walk in love. We want to walk in the love of God. So I'm going to just pause at this moment and I'm just going to pray that we want his presence, don't we? More than anything, we want God to come and make the scriptures alive to our hearts so that we would know him better. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence. Give us eyes to see you today. Give us ears to hear you today. Help us to sense you. Help us to know you more and delight in you. Come and fill us with your spirit. Come and make your word alive to our hearts. Bring healing to every part of us that is broken and damaged. By sin. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to begin this message with a question for you. And that's quite a sensitive question. The question is, are you grieving? Are you grieving? In this pandemic season, the last 18 months, there's been so much to grieve, hasn't there? There's been so much to feel loss and lament about that it feels almost painful to start to talk about. So I want to start with some lighthearted things that I know people have been grieving, that people have talked about with me. Some people have grieved in this season a good haircut. <laughs> you know, a bit frustrated, I don't know what's happened at home or who cut their hair in the meantime, but they really, they were, they were first in the queue, weren't they? The hairdressers opened and they were out there right that day. You know, I want my hair cut. Others have been grieving being able to sit and sip their favorite cup of coffee in their favorite coffee shop and just chew the fat and relax. People have been grieving that. People have grieved not being able to go to the gym with other people and work out with all the you know, nice music in the background, the whole atmosphere that helps them work extra hard. I don't get that one personally. 
I don't want to share a room with all these sweaty, smelly people. <laughs> anyway, each to their own. There's been the lighthearted things we've grieving. I'm not trying to dismiss those because those start to add up and accumulate and, and make us feel out of sorts, uncomfortable. But then there have been other things that we've grieved. We've grieved not being able to hug people, haven't we? Hug those you know, your friends, your family. We grieved over Christmas. We were going to have Christmas, and then suddenly, boom, it was taken away from us. We didn't get that. We didn't get time to celebrate with family. We, didn't, we don't get to do birthdays together, all the birthdays that people have missed, and you, you couldn't do in the normal way and celebrate that. It's, it's been hard. And People have grieved over lost jobs. People have grieved over lost career opportunities. People have grieved over lost loved ones in this time whether through COVID or other means, and maybe have even grieved not being able to grieve because you can't have a normal funeral and you can't celebrate the life and it's so messed up and they feel like they're a bit stuck in their grief. We've had so much grief, I think, going on inside us that begs the question, what do you do with this grief? Where do you go? Who do you go? Now, you're in a church. I'm a church pastor. I'm going to say God and only God can help you with your grief. And it's in his embrace that you'll find help to get a grip on grief. And I use this as a way into this passage and to the first of three points I'm going to make from these three verses today. And the first point is the God who grieves. In fact, all of the points I'm going to make are about the very being of God, what he is like. So the God who grieves. And there's a question that goes with each point to help you apply it. That question is, are you grieving? Now, it's, a little, it's deliberately cryptic so that you, you'll pay attention, hopefully, and keep listening to work out where I'm going. Because that question will flip on its head by the time the point is over. But in a way that I believe will help you. So let's just back up. Let's start. Verse 30, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture. And he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The first thing we need to note about the Holy Spirit is he must be a person because he can be grieved. Only a person can, can be grieved, can experience that. If the Holy Spirit was an it, some kind of impersonal force like Star Wars, use the force, Luke, and all of that. I love Star Wars, but I tell you, the Holy Spirit is so much better than an impersonal force. He is a being. He's not an it. We should repent where we think of him as an it or, or, or a force. He's a person who can be grieved, and he is fully God. Psalm 139, verse 7, David says this, Where can I go from your spirit? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I go down into the depths, you are there. In other words, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is everywhere, which is a divine attribute of God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. All the power, all the wisdom, all the ability of God that you would see in the Father or in the Son is also true of the Holy Spirit. And he is a person who can feel. And feel deeply. Now, Bible geeks, don't panic. I am not going to deny what's called the doctrine of impassibility. If you don't know what it is, don't really worry about that. I'm going to simply argue that God has emotions, but he possesses them in a divine way. God the Father grieves. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. God has 
created this beautiful world and only the first human beings that represent all of us, Adam and Eve, they rebel against him. And that snowballs into their offspring, into Cain killing his own flesh and blood brother and then snowballs again until there's this destructive force where all the good gifts of God are being used to destroy and damage one another and God looks out on what he has made and he feels sick to the heart, sorry. He grieves over his creation. God the Father grieves. God the Son grieves. Jesus grieves. He grieved at the death of his friend Lazarus, stood outside the grave. We have the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. A few verses later, we read that he was enraged at the same time. Now the original Greek is far more realistic. It's describing a sort of animalistic snorting with, with anger and fury. What, what's going on in Jesus God in this moment? Because he's saying this will not end in death. He's saying I'm going to Lazarus to raise him from the dead. Why is Jesus so, so full of emotion? Why is he grieving? Why is he weeping? Why is he so angry? I tell you he looks at that funeral, and he sees all past funerals. He sees all present funerals going on around the world. He sees all future funerals. He sees your funeral. He sees your death, and he weeps and is furious at the destruction that death has caused to the human race. He grieves. The heart of God grieves, and here in verse 30, we read that the Holy Spirit grieves. The three persons of our one God united in their ability to, to grieve. To grieve. This is mind-blowing if you can get your head around it. Just to help you do that, let's contrast just for a moment with other so-called gods of this day. Think of Buddha. Do you ever see a tear coming down his stoic statue-like face? No, you never will. Or what about... The Muslim god Allah, as far as I am aware, you will never hear of Allah crying. Because that would be a form of weakness. Too much to stomach. It reminds me of the lie of toxic masculinity that real men don't cry. Jesus was the real man. And he wept. He wept. This is an encouragement for all of us to get in touch with our emotions okay so maybe you're with me on this point I get you God grieves Howard he grieves so what so what well here's the point we only grieve over what we love and typically in proportion to how much you love you grieve the loss you grieve the harm that's being done. It, it, it hurts you because you love. God grieves because he loves. Because he loves his creation. Because he, he loves you. This is incredible comfort for anybody who's caught in the grip of grief. Number one, God understands. 
God knows. He can identify with you. He can sympathize, empathize with you because he knows. But more than that, he grieves for you. You're an object of his grief. Wow. And when you start to understand that, that there is a holy, higher grief, it starts to reach into your earthly grief to, to lift you up out of it, to give you a sense of perspective. Now, it's right, though, I should clarify this to say that Paul is really primarily writing to those who believe. And so that this great comfort of God's grief is there available for those who've trusted in Jesus. So my question is, have you? Have you really trusted in Jesus? Do you know where you stand? If you were to die today, heaven forbid that that would happen, but if you did, do you know that you would go with absolute assurance straight into the presence of God and you could say, yes, I'm saved, hallelujah. Come what may, I'll be safe for eternity. If you don't know that, with certainty in your heart, we want to encourage you, reach out to someone today, request prayer throughout this service if you're watching online. Don't leave this room without talking to me or somebody else that you've seen on the stage, the platform, a host. We'd love to pray with you about that. Equally, if you're struggling with grief here, don't struggle alone. When one part of the body grieves, the rest of us grieve together. We just... We'd love you to reach out to somebody in this fellowship, in this community. If you're not sure who or how to do that, email talk to me at westminsterchapel.org.uk. Someone will help you. They'll probably just take you out for a coffee and just listen to you and then see if there's anything that we might be able to do to support you. Don't, don't miss out. But as I was saying, Paul is writing primarily to believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what happens when you grieve the Holy Spirit? Do you lose your salvation? No, absolutely not. That's not what's going on here. A believer who's born again can't lose their salvation. They can't be unborn and stuffed back up the birth canal of salvation. It doesn't work that way. That's kind of naturally ridiculous and so true of the spiritual reality. No. The verse itself makes it very clear that you are sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed unbreakably for the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment that is coming. You are safe through faith. What happens though when you grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, he will never ever abandon a believer, but you can lose the sense of his presence. You can lose the intimacy, the closeness, the nearness, the, the fellowship. The Holy Spirit is a holy spirit. And he cannot easily dwell with unholiness. Dr. R.T. Kendall, who's the former minister here at the chapel for 25 years, said that one of the greatest learnings of his entire 25-year ministry here at our church was that it is the easiest thing in the world to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he said that the Holy Spirit, his felt presence is depicted as a dove coming upon Jesus. And a dove, he says, is a very sensitive creature and, and therefore the Holy Spirit is a very sensitive person. And that's not in like the, the touchy, sensitive human way. That's in a holy, divine way. 
that it's, it's very easy to, to grieve him and for the dove of his felt presence, his nearness, his joy, his sense of assurance, the arms of God's love coming around and embracing you for you to lose that sense and for the dove to fly away when we sin, when we grieve God, when we sin in these different ways that are described here, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. The dove of the Holy Spirit can, can flutter and fly, fly away. And we, we lose that sense of intimacy and assurance. Sin distances us from God. And we stop sensing the nearness of his love. This is my first point, the God who grieves. Do you know him? Do you? And are you grieving him? If you've lost that sense of intimacy, closeness, assurance, joy, peace, it's quite possible that you're grieving him in some way. And that you're going to need the next point, point number two, the God who transforms, the God who transforms. And the question here is, are you killing and sowing? Are you killing and sowing? God is such an awesome God of infinite love. For all eternity, he's been like that, overflowing in his Trinitarian being with one to another, Father to Son to Holy Spirit, pouring that out, that love out into creation. This is what he's like. He's so loving that he will never turn anyone away who comes to him. He'll accept everyone, however messed up you are, however dirty you feel, however discouraged with life. Whether you're a Matt Hancock or his aide Gene or whatever you've done, if you come to him and you've messed up, you've, you've had an affair, you've committed adultery, I, I, I don't know, you, if you come to him, he won't turn you away. He's a God of love. He will accept the people that our society most rejects. That's the heart of God. But I tell you, also because he's a God of love, he won't leave you as you are. He loves you too much for that. He wants to see you transformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus. We express that here as a church of acceptance and transformation. In other words, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And this is really a depiction of what Paul is doing in this second half of this first century letter. Chapters 1 to 3 were revealing the diamond jewel of the Christian truth. Chapters 4 to 6 are how do you live that out? And he's saying you need to put off the old self and put on the new self, put on Christ. And the way that we do that is with noticing, noticing sin. That's where it starts. And then confessing it and then repenting of it, turning from it. In other words, a good summary of it, we are killing it. We're, we're trying to kill sin. The Puritan John Owen said it like this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So Paul wants to help us in this. So he's listing out sins to help you notice them, to help you to, to spot them. Because we're not very aware of that. I mean, in this culture now, we see the sin of breaking COVID laws about social distancing as being more serious than a sin of breaking your marriage vows. We're confused. We're not noticing it. And we're not really aware of, of sin in our own hearts. Our culture is conditioning us to dismiss sin, to deny sin. It's a little bit like bad breath. 
I think most of us don't notice that we've got bad breath. But everybody else knows. It's the painful truth. Now you've been wearing a mask. Um, you know, you're helping other people, but you're discovering for yourself that your breath smells, right? It's not just me. You're kind of like, yeah, it really stinks, right? There's a sort of revealer about that. For me, it's so revealing that um, my wife, Holly, if I have a spare mask, she's forgotten hers. She will wait outside a shop and put my spare mask on because it, it physically makes her wretch and gag. That's how bad it is. That's the sort of illustration, if you like, of what we're like when it comes to sin. And in the season that God's put us through. Somebody recently called the coronavirus pandemic the coronapocalypse. Now, an apocalypse is an unveiling, a revealing, a lifting of the lid of the true reality. And I think that's what's happened in these past 18 plus months for us. Some of the lid of our sin has been lifted, exposed, and revealed. And we're not sure what to do with it. We, just, we can't live in denial in a way about it anymore. That's a really good thing. So that we deal with it. We come to God and we experience his forgiveness and his love. So Paul's helping us. He's giving us a list of six sins. And I'm going to go through them one by one fairly quickly now. But I want you to pause. And for you to have a moment with God using Psalm 139. And to say, search my heart, O God. See if there's any unclean way in me. The first on the list is bitterness. What is bitterness? It's angst about being slighted. It's holding grudges towards your family, your neighbors, your work colleagues, your flatmates, church members, the people you are sat next to in church, your church leaders, past, present, all of that. It's holding grudges. You're, you're nursing the unfair treatment that you believe you've received, but it's making your soul sour and bitter. It's an ugliness. It's eating you up inside. That's bitterness. Next is wrath. This is a boiling over of fury that can come out where you end up doing GBH, grievous bodily harm, but with your words most often. And then there's anger. Is that you, anger? Simmering below the surface all the time. There's an anger waiting to get out. Passive aggressiveness. Cutting comments, put-downs. Anger is often a symptom of someone who's experienced a lot of rejection in life. And it comes out in anger. This person's going to reject me and I'm angry. Maybe you're angry because people are not doing things the way you want them to be done. Circumstances in life are not going the way you want them to be. Instead of surrendering in them, you're angry and you're going to fight for your right. Next, here on the list is clamor. This is harsh, noisy words. It's the kind of filth that kind of comes out when you shout or you raise your voice in a very emotional way. And then there's slander. Painting slurs on someone else's character. Running them down in order to make yourself look better. Typically partners with gossip, these muck-spreading duo. And then the final word here is malice. It's a little catch-all term for almost everything that's already been said. It's hating other people so much 
that you think about, maybe you imagine, fantasize hurting them physically or, or emotionally. Maybe you don't even act it out, but, but it's there. That, that's what's going on. And did you notice that so many of these sins are about speech or about what you say, about what you do with your words? Does that, does that surprise you in some ways? Well, it really shouldn't because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, he's saying, Matthew 12, out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It reveals what's going on inside. And then a few verses later, he will say, one day you will have to give an account for every careless word that you have spoken. I want that to be under the blood of Jesus Christ, don't you? Now, for me personally, there's a story that brings this to life. I had just finished um, secondary school, and I received a letter in the post, and it described all the brutal ways that I would be killed. It's phenomenally graphic that I would be preyed upon when I was alone I would be found my fingers would be cut off one by one my toes one by one my tongue would be ripped out so on all of the stuff and eventually I'd be murdered my mum understandably very anxious about this so she gave it to the police a couple of weeks later they came back and said we found the person who wrote this it's okay they're not going to carry out this threat it was the name of somebody I went to school with in secondary school and I didn't know that his home life was really difficult. And I tried to search my mind, what, what, what did I do to this guy that would result in such an extreme reaction? Why does he hate me so much? And then immediately this incident came to my mind when we were at school and he'd come and we had PE that day and he didn't bring the right PE kit. He just had his shorts. He didn't bring the right top. And the rule back then was, you wouldn't be allowed to do this now, that if you didn't have the right top for PE, you went skins. You went naked. And he was a slightly plumper kid. And I wanted to be cool to all the others. I, I saw it as a moment to kind of, oh, I could, you know, I, I could be great. I could be the cool guy. I could pick on, pick on him. So I made a joke about his appearance. I hurt him to help myself. Because below that, I was worshipping the idol of approval. I would do anything to take back those words. so hurt him careless words what are you doing with your words and your speech are you using them to build up or to tear down if I was looking at a transcript of everything that you've said this week what would your mouth say about you what would it reveal about the idols going on in, in your heart and underneath There's good news coming. <laughs> Maturity, I've discovered, is about, really about learning. How do you grow in the Holy Spirit? How do you grow in sensitivity to the Holy Spirit? I think that's a very good definition of what it means to be mature. So there's this gap. We've got to manage the gap between commission of sin and confession of sin. And we want to get that shorter and shorter and shorter by being more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So instead of it being like years, months, weeks, days, it becomes hours minutes, seconds even, that you're in conversation with someone and, and you, you just know, oh, 
oh, I had this thought, or I said this word, and that's wrong. Oh, there's a conviction, there's a sense of the Spirit. You can sense, if you like, figuratively, the dove beginning to flap his wings of the Spirit and fly away, and you stop mid-sentence. Boom, no. You confess, and you repent. You rejoice in God's goodness, and then you say something completely different, and you build up instead of tear down. You speak truth and love instead of spreading gossip. That's the call to be that sensitive about all aspects of sin. And it's possible as we tune in to the Holy Spirit. But we don't just kill off sin with confession of it. We also need to sow to righteousness. Sowing righteousness to starve sin of any space to grow in the garden of our hearts. So we put off this satanic six list of sins and we put off the terrific trio we put on the terrific trio what are they well it begins with kindness you put on kindness these are all ways of really putting on the person of jesus christ revealed in the scripture scriptures kindness is about being useful it's about being helpful so whose burdens could you carry whose difficulties could you help address whose problems could you solve and then there's tender-heartedness it's another word for compassion Jesus, Matthew chapter 9, when he saw people who were lost and confused and weren't doing much to really help themselves, he didn't get irritated by them. That would be my temptation. Maybe it's yours. Just to find people like that really annoying, irritable. Jesus, it says, had compassion. It's moved. Gut level compassion for people. Compassion is all about seeing the troubles that others are in so much that you lose sight of your own. Who is God stirring you to be compassionate towards? The final one is forgiving. Forgiving. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the other well-known preachers of this church, says forgiveness is about seeing the full horror of what's been done to you and then choosing to remember it no more. He says that really he actually makes a very strong argument, I think, for why only a Christian can actually do that properly. Here's what he says. A Christian has become able to look at the offender now with a new eye. Before he saw him as a person who is doing him harm. Now he sees him as a victim of sin, a pawn and a dupe of the devil. And he says, yes, he is like that. And I was like that. And there are relics and remnants of that in me still. Who am I to say I will not forgive that man? So who do you need to forgive? And for what? Don't say nobody. Everybody wrestles with this issue. And it comes back again and again. Who do I need? Okay, God, I need to go back. I need to forgive them again. Now, I could finish the sermon here and do you a massive disservice. I wonder if you know what that would be. If I just stopped at this moment, it would be what I would call a synagogue sermon. I've just told you, do, 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 don't, 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 and do, do, do. This is what we would call law, legalistic. Here's the great example. Now go and do that. No, that's, that's not the Christian gospel. We have a greater power that enables us, that transforms us to do all of those things. That's my final point. The God who has already forgiven. The God who has forgiven. That's how Paul finishes. Forgive just as you have been forgiven. Just as 
you have been forgiven. Notice it's past tense. You see that? For the believer it's already happened. You have been forgiven legally. All your guilt dealt with, addressed, gone. But God doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to experience the fullness of that forgiveness, the joy of that forgiveness, the fellowship with him in that forgiveness. The word used for forgiving and forgave here is the same word that's, or related rather to the same word that's used for grace and for gift and for freely and abundantly. And I think it's describing really what just as means. There is a debate, you can go there if you want to, about whether just as means you should only, your forgiveness is conditional on repentance. Now, I'm not going to go there today, but I think one thing you can be absolutely sure of, that the just as is about the unbelievable abundance and generosity of God's forgiveness. So when you forgive, you've got to be just as generous, just as liberal, just as free and gracious with, with forgiveness. That's what God's forgiveness is like. I've mentioned this before, but I always think of Peter, the kind of disciple who has cocky moments. And he goes to Jesus, I think, hoping that he might get some brownie points. Maybe in his mind, he's like, I want to be disciple of the month in Jesus' good books. So he goes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Not just once, twice, or three times, but seven times. What do you think about that? Hey, Jesus, isn't that good? And Jesus just says, 70 times, seven times, Peter. Whoa. That's the nature of God's forgiveness. It's generous. But that extravagant generosity has a cost to it. And I want to take a few minutes as we come to a close to just unpack that for you. And then we'll enter into a time of worship. The costliness of this forgiveness. In 1 John 1 9, this great verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. That word forgive there literally means to leave or to send away. And it's a hyperlink taking us all the way back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And there there's this practice, it's called the scapegoat practice, where the high priest, Jewish high priest, would kind of commission and lay hands upon a goat and would ceremonially put all of the sins of the people on the goat and then they would send the goat out of the camp, far gone, never ever to return. That's what God seeks to do with our sins. They're, they're, they're gone. They're, they're sent away. The, the running goat going far away in the other direction. Now think with me about the parable of the prodigal son or sons. The story of the loving father. One of his sons comes to him, wants his inheritance early and basically says, Dad, I'd rather you were dead. Give me the money now. I'm going to go and live my own life. Don't care about you. He does that. The son wastes everything, makes a mess of his life, turns back to the father. The father does what? He runs. He lifts up his, his robe, humiliates himself, shames himself, charges towards the sun, embraces the sun. The sun's pigmuck filth is covered in the embrace of the loving father. And he's given the gifts of ring and robe and sandals. And all of the sin he's done is lost and remembered no more as a celebration takes place, a festivity. There's just joy, nothing but joy. It's a beautiful scene. I love the way Charlie Mackesy depicts it here. The return of the prodigal son. 
the embrace of the Father. For me, it's a picture of the very opposite of what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. And that when we turn from grieving the Holy Spirit, we experience this embrace again. In fact, I would argue that you want to know what does it mean to be a Christian? This is it. This is your identity. This is who you are with all of the sins that you've done. Bitterness, wrath, anger. And that embrace is experienced the moment the son comes to his senses, it says. Owns his sin and seeks to go back to the father. That's a synonym for confession and repentance. But that running, that running toward necessitates another running. That God has to run to the cross. God has to become the ultimate scapegoat. The sin of the world has to be imputed onto him. Your sin, my sin, the sin of generations of people, all imputed onto him. He has to be sent out to become the ultimate outsider so you can become the ultimate insider in the embrace of God the Father. He has to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you can say, my God, my God, how is it amazing that you've forgiven me? He does that so you would know the depths of his love. So that when you experience his embrace, this is no empty love. This is the greatest love the world has ever known. And when you experience that love, when you're held in that embrace, when you know that embrace again because you've confessed your sins and the joy of his arms, you feel them around you. He's not abandoned you, but you sense his presence, his peace, his love, his, his delight over you. All of that restored. The bones which felt crushed now before, they're rejoicing, they're dancing in the power of God's love. When you know that, you feel so safe. You feel so secure. You feel so accepted. There's nothing better than anything in this world that then it's so easy to forgive. It's so easy to be tender-hearted. It's so easy to be kind. You're just pouring out of the overflow of what you're experiencing in Christ. And what happens, church, if we all do that? If every one of us stops grieving the Holy Spirit, or as soon as we grieve the Holy Spirit, we confess, and we welcome the Spirit back down again. Revival. Revival. Nothing in the way of the Holy Spirit having his way amongst his people. The weightiness of his presence. And then an army of his people moving with supernatural anointed kindness, compassion, and forgiveness in the opposite spirit of the world, leading hundreds if not thousands of people to faith because they want and desperately need more than anything in this world the embrace of the Father. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you can feel I thank you right now that you can feel and draw close to the brokenhearted in this room and watching online. And I'd ask you to increase your presence. I'd ask you to unlock very deep emotions and pain. I'd ask you to bring a conviction of sin that quickly leads to 
a confession and a repentance and a liberation and a joy, I'd ask you to put your arms of love around every person in this service. Holy Spirit, come down as we own our sins, as we confess our bitterness and all that lies behind these other sins. Lord, come near to us. Fill your church with your presence. Empower us with joy. Help us to know that you ran to the cross so you could run to us with arms of love. Come, Spirit of God. Help us to revel in your goodness, in your grace, that we would do it. How can it be that we would be rescued? How can this such good God save us? The amazing grace of God awaken our eyes our hearts to know this more we pray in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.